Hey, I've got some exciting news for you. For nearly a decade, the Social Media Marketing Society has been helping marketers like you to keep up with the changing times. This is our private community just for marketers, and the doors are open right now. When you join, you get access to ongoing training and become part of a welcoming community of marketers who are just like you. Learn more at smmarketingsociety.com. Again, smmarketingsociety.com. Welcome to the Social Media Marketing Podcast, helping you navigate the social media jungle. And now, here is your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Social Media Marketing Podcast, brought to you by socialmediaexaminer.com. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for marketers and business owners who want to know what works with social media. Today, I'll be joined by David Merman Scott, and we're going to explore how to develop loyal fans. And we're going to talk about some really interesting neuroscience at the end of this podcast that I think you're absolutely going to love. By the way, if you want to reach me, I am at Stelzner on Instagram, or you can email podcast at socialmediaexaminer.com. And before we get started, if you're new to this podcast, hit that subscribe button. If you're a regular listener, would you be willing to give us a rating and or a review? You can do that most likely on your app that you're listening to right now. If you're not on the Apple app, you can simply visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash Apple, and I believe that will get you right where you need to go. I was recently at Social Media Marketing World, and I had a chance to connect with some of our best customers. A lot of them listen to our podcast, just like you do. Not everyone knows what I'm about to share with you. We do something special here at Social Media Examiner. The best of the best of the guests that you hear on the Social Media Marketing Podcast not only teach at our conference, but they're also part of our secret society called the Social Media Marketing Society. Each month, our top-tier guests who have been on my show are invited to train inside our society for an exclusive group of marketers who are just like you. The training is designed to help you go from being a passive consumer of content to a marketer who is in active learning mode. So if you're ready to make real progress with your marketing, you're a perfect fit for the Social Media Marketing Society. Join us by visiting smmarketingsociety.com. We've got a really big sale that is ending very soon, so don't delay. Again, visit smmarketingsociety.com and join today. All right, let's transition over to this week's episode with David Merman Scott. Helping you to simplify your social safari. Here is this week's expert guide. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by David Merman Scott. If you don't know who David is, you need to know who he is. He's a marketer, speaker, and the best-selling author of The New Rules, Marketing, and PR. His latest book is called Fanocracy, How to Turn Fans into Customers, and customers into fans. David, welcome to the show. Hey, Mike. Thanks. I'm so, so happy to be here. Well, I'm really excited because I've known David for a very long time. And today, what David and I are going to explore is how to develop loyal fans. But before we go there, I'd love to hear your story. How did you get into marketing? And feel free to take it wherever you want to go. 
<laughs> sure. Um, I think like many of us, it was a, it was a, not a straight line, more of a circular route. But I got out of school. I thought I wanted to be a bond trader. And so I got a job on Wall Street in a bond trading desk. And I hated it. And I was terrible at it. But what I loved, Mike, was the information that the bond traders used, hmm. uh, the screens they were using, Dow Jones, Reuters, Bloomberg. And so I actually worked for about 15 years in the real-time information business for companies like Dow Jones. And most recently, I worked for um, a division of Thomson Reuters as their vice president of marketing. So I was a marketing guy at information companies, and a lot of that time was pre-web. So I kind of had a head start when the web came around and when people were talking about marketing on the web as an advertising metaphor, you remember back in the day when it was all about banner ads and oh, so yeah. on? Yeah, yeah. I'm like, no, man, this is not about advertising. This is about content creation. So that was back in 2002 that I first started to talk about that, st started blogging about it in 04. Uh, started writing what became the new rules of marketing and PR in 2005 and 2006. And then the first edition of the new rules of marketing and PR came out then. And that book, as you know, kind of went crazy. It, um, it was arguably the first book to articulate what now people might, I call it new rules of marketing and PR. Some people call it inbound marketing or content marketing or social media marketing, depending on what you call it. But those ideas, I was among the first to talk about it, certainly the first to write about it in the form of a book. And that initial edition of New Rules of Marketing and PR was six months on the Business Week bestseller list. It sold 400,000 copies in the English language and it's in 29 other languages. And so that got me going on the speaking circuit, which I absolutely love to present. And for the last 13 or 14 years, I've been doing 30 or 40 or 50 speaking gigs a year. And I love the international ones, especially. I got connected with Tony Robbins back in 2014. And Tony has me speak for two hours on his business mass at his business mastery events and they're really interesting events for entrepreneurs and have done that now for five years so that's been really interesting and you know in the last five years or so i've been thinking like we're going somewhere new we're going somewhere different and it's in the same way that I identified back in the very early 2000s that marketing was going in a new direction. It was going online and it was a content metaphor rather than an advertising metaphor. I see the same thing again, that something is changing in the world of marketing. And what I think is changing is that we're going back in the decade of the 2020s to a more human connection. We're going back to an era where you really need to have engagements, true engagement with fans, true engagements with customers, and not just all the superficial stuff that we've we've been seeing recently. And you know, you and I talked about this um, last week, where there's so much stuff out there that's just it's polarizing in the online world there's so many organizations that are doubling down not in the ways that you and your tribe talks about how to do social media marketing or how i talk about it but the dark parts of it the nefarious parts of it the trickery the you know you get on an email list and you can't get off and you get dozens of emails a week kind of thing or people who connect with you on linkedin and immediately try to sell you something or the whole social networks themselves optimized 
their algorithms optimized around profit rather than around getting the content out there. And I know those are things that you've talked about a lot as well, but I think that a human connection is coming, Mike, and that's what I've been writing about and thinking about now for a couple of years. Outstanding. I agree with you. It feels like I remember the early days of social media marketing was very much about community. It was. You know, and everybody was called community managers. They weren't really necessarily using algorithms and it wasn't about scale. It was about connection. And it seems right. like we're heading back that way, doesn't it? I, I That's what I'm feeling. And I'm feeling it in so many different ways. And, you know, everybody I talk to, you know, no one thinks that social media is going away. Of course it isn't. Nobody thinks that we're going into an era where it won't be used. Of course it's going to be used. But I think so many people are, are just fed up with the ways that they're used incorrectly. And also, I think a little fed up with the social media companies themselves, Facebook and so on, who just seem so optimized on the profit motive and all of the problems that that entails with those of us who are trying to get our, our stuff out there and trying to develop these connections. Well, that's a great transition into discussing fans. Obviously, your new book is called Fanocracy. Mm -hmm. um, why did you decide to write a book on fans and why are fans so important for businesses? So, so as I was thinking about this idea that we're going somewhere new, that we're, I think, entering a new era, I was thinking about that starting as long as five years ago. I was thinking about the things that I love, and I'm, I'm a huge live music fan. I've been to 790 live music concerts in my life starting when I was age 15. I actually keep an Excel spreadsheet with all of the shows and the dates and sometimes who I was with. And I've been to 75 Grateful Dead concerts. <laughs> so I that, was that sounds like the, that's a lot. I mean, is that like uh, most of them? There's a lot of Grateful Dead concerts. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. And I was talking to my daughter, Reiko. She's 26 years old, and this was about five years ago. I was 21 at the time. And I said to her, you know, Reka, what is it with us and our geeky fandoms? Because she knows I'm a massive Grateful Dead fan. She's a Harry Potter fan. She's not only seen every movie multiple times, seen, um, watched, uh, read every book multiple times, gone to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter in Orlando several times, went to London to go on the studio tour where they filmed the movies, but she wrote a 90,000 word alternative ending to the Harry Potter series where Draco Malfoy is a spy for the order of the Phoenix and put that up on a fan fiction site for free. And that novel has been read by thousands and thousands of people with hundreds of comments on it. Huh. So she's a massive Harry Potter fan. She goes to Comic-Con every year. And so we agreed that for us, our fandoms, were incredibly important to us, you know, Grateful Dead, Harry Potter. And we both recognized that the people that we share those fandoms with are among our best friends. And those human connections that we have with those people are really, really powerful in our personal lives. So we decided to work together. She's my co-author on the book Fanocracy and Tony Robbins wrote the forward to Fanocracy. But Reiko and I worked together to think about research and then ultimately write what became fanocracy. And, you know, me being a middle-aged white guy who loves the Grateful Dead and her being a mixed race millennial woman who loves Harry Potter, who also happens to be a neuroscientist and finishing up med school, we turned, turned out to be a really cool pair 
to think and write about these ideas of fans. And one of the first things we wanted to explore was, yeah, we're a fan, I'm a fan of music. She's a fan of Harry Potter and Comic-Con. But can the same ideas be used for all businesses? And that was the first thing we began to research. And the answer turned out to be 100% yes, <laughs> because we found examples of, of fans, of people, businesses that have been building fans and growing on fans in all kinds of businesses, nonprofits and government agencies and, and B2B software companies and enterprise software companies and consumer products companies and doctors and dentists and lawyers. And it doesn't matter. We found examples of all. And I wanted to share two of those that were surprising and emblematic of this idea that any organization can create fans. The first one is Haggerty Insurance. They're in the auto insurance business. Oh my God, Mike. I don't know about you, but everybody I've asked hates auto insurance. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's not my not, favorite topic, that's for sure. It's not your favorite topic, right? And it's not a product that you love to buy. You know, it's terrible to spend money on auto insurance. And furthermore, you don't want to ever have to use the product because it means you crashed your car. Right. And so I was speaking with Mikhail Haggerty. He's the CEO of Haggerty Insurance. And I, he said to me, David, I couldn't build my business the way the other insurance companies are. I, I don't want to become the low cost provider. That's not for me. I don't want to spend a crap load of money on advertising and, you know, try to compete with geckos and lizards on TV commercials. So what he told me that he did was he specifically went out to build fans and they do classic car auto insurance. And so he began early on just him and a couple of his teammates. And now, now he's got a whole company around it to go to classic car events and um, they set up a booth and provide educational seminars and meet with fans of classic cars. They have a, a, a fabulous YouTube channel. And anyone listening in who wants to see a business that everybody hates with a YouTube channel that has a million subscribers, check out Haggerty Insurance on YouTube. Yeah. They have 650,000 members of their driver's club. They have a, a bi-monthly magazine, print magazine that goes out. And they have developed literally millions of fans. They're now the largest classic car insurance company in the world. They're going to grow by 200,000 new customers this year. And they've had double digit compound growth ever since they started this concept of working with fans. So that's an example of an organization doing a fabulous job with fandom in a business everyone hates to, to buy. And the second example that's surprising and illustrates this idea that fandom can be everywhere is a U.S. government agency. Yes, a U.S. government agency that has over 50 million followers on Instagram. They have tens of millions of fans around the world. You can be walking down the street in any any city in the world and not be surprised to see someone wearing a logo t-shirt of this government agency. I was in the Seychelles, a group of islands off the eastern coast of Africa, just above Madagascar in the Indian Ocean, um, just last month with my wife on vacation. And we were walking down a rural street and there is a young man walking towards us wearing a NASA T-shirt. They're a government agency with tens of millions of fans. So we identified so many different organizations that have developed really strong fans. And those in turn help to support 
that business in a way that just doing transactional product and, and, and service selling does not work. So if you had to summarize what the big long-term advantages are to fans, what would be a couple of words that pop into your mind? What's really interesting about it, Mike, is that it creates a tribe of people who love what you do, who are eager to continue to be your customers, who are eager to share with other people that they love what you do, that wear the t-shirt, that put the sticker on their computer, even put a tattoo on their body. Um, Joe DeSena, who's the um, founder of Spartan Race, wrote a um, endorsement quote for the book. And what he says is our customers are no ordinary customers. They are diehard fans who bleed for us the world over. They love calling themselves Spartans. They bear Spartan tattoos <laughs> and share their experiences with family and friends, bringing hundreds of thousands of new Spartans to the brand each year. So this idea of fans means that you have a sustainable business and you don't have to be constantly in transaction mode of looking for where your next piece of business is going to come from. You can grow business by having fans that will support you. Very cool. It uh, is cool. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's amazing. I mean, you know, I can't, Mike, I came at this as, as a fan and now I realize that we can all develop fans. And by the way, you have developed fans. I mean, social media examiner, social media marketing world, you've done a fabulous job at building fans. I mean, you know, the people who come to your event, the people who are listening to this podcast, the people who follow your content, you have done this, Mike. Um, so congratulations. I mean, Thank you. You, are, you are an example of what I call a fanocracy. People who are spreading the your ideas for you that come back again and again, that, that subscribe, that can't wait for the next a live event that can't wait for the next podcast episode. Well, I guess the natural next question is now that we've been sold on the value proposition of, of having loyal fans, how do we actually develop those fans? What are your thoughts on that? Cause I know there's a lot that you talk about in the book and we obviously aren't going to go down the entire trail, but maybe we can zoom in on a couple things. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. So we did look at what are some of the prescriptions for developing fans. We came up with with about 10 of them. Each one is a chapter in the book. And I wanted to talk a little bit about three of them because they have specific applicability to the whole world of social media. The first one is a chapter title we call Let Go of Your Creations. And the idea of letting go of your creations is that, and this is something my daughter Reiko identified really early on as we were writing the book, is that once you put your product or service or idea or art into the marketplace, it no longer belongs to you. And you need to let the fans take over. And Reiko wrote about this because She's a, a real big fan of all kinds of speculative fiction, not just Harry Potter, but other ones as well. And some of the authors she loves celebrate when people do things like write fan fiction, but others try to clamp down on it. Mm -hmm. And we identified that the same thing is true of all sorts of companies. So anyone listening in should be thinking about with this prescription is just let people talk about you in the way that they want to. Let them share in the way that they want to. Don't try to control the messaging. And I want to share an example of each. So an organization that does try to control the message is Adobe. And my daughter, Reiko, is a huge fan of 
Adobe Photoshop and she does art using Adobe Photoshop and she's participates in lots of different online forums, chat rooms, tumblers that she follows, blogs that she follows, YouTube videos that she follows of other people who do art using Photoshop. And she found a site and everyone was laughing at Adobe because they were trying to control the way that people talk about Photoshop. And they were all laughing at Adobe because Adobe said, you cannot say that you Photoshopped something. You must say that you manipulated something using Adobe, trademark circle R, Photoshop, trademark circle R, software. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and, and Reiko said to me, Daddy, every, everything that Adobe says we should say sounds like, um, like, like they're telling us what to do. And everything that we're doing sounds like we're fans talking. So the opposite of that is... Wait, wait, the, wait, 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 wait real quick. Let's just talk yeah, about this. So sure. basically, they don't want to use the word Photoshop as a verb is what they're saying. And, That's and, what they said in that particular case, but there are other yeah, rules as well. Yeah. And and when you use Photoshop, you have to put Adobe and probably trademark next to it. Correct. I mean, I, I got to tell you, I've gotten emails from organizations that I will not mention that are really big that have made me completely alter articles that we published because, <laughs> because we did not properly mention the trademark exactly the way it's licensed with the government or whatever. And it's just right, like, right. you know, come on. I you're mean, like, like, you're like, I'm talking about you guys. Yeah, what exactly. You, wait, like I'm giving, I'm, I'm they gave me the option to change audience. it or remove the article. I was like, what? <laughs> so yeah. Why <laughs> do you amazing. think, why do you think businesses, first of all, like especially bigger businesses, what do you just think they've hired people to go out there and scrape the web or what's the problem here? I think that some businesses, in some businesses, there's probably well-meaning social marketing people at Adobe, but I think that the lawyers are more powerful. Mm. And I think that's true in, in, a, in a lot of organizations that for whatever reason, and there's probably a variety of reasons, but for whatever reason, um, people listen to what the lawyer's perspective is versus listening to what um, the social media marketer's perspective is. Right. And so that leads to rather than somebody finding an article that somebody from your team wrote and then writing a note as a comment and saying, wow, cool, thanks. Really appreciate you talking about us and then sharing it on their Twitter. Right. They're doing the opposite. They're saying, you're not using our trademark properly. Um, <laughs> and so I, I think that's kind of kind of silly. And you know that I invented a concept called newsjacking because you've written about newsjacking before. Newsjacking is the art and science of, of injecting your ideas into a breaking news story. So you create a blog post or YouTube video uh, as a result of a breaking news story around an area that you're an expert in, put it out in real time, and you have the potential to generate lots of attention, maybe get quoted in the media, maybe drive sales as a result. So I did something that everybody told me not to do, Mike. Everybody told me that I should trademark newsjacking. David, you invented newsjacking. You should trademark newsjacking. And I'm like, no, I don't want to. I don't want to do that. I want to. I didn't use this language, but the title, the chapter title, is "Let Go of Your Creations." I let go of my creation. I did not trademark it. Yes, I own the URL. Yes, I wrote a book with the title Newsjacking. Yes, I speak from the stage sometimes about Newsjacking, blog about it sometimes. But I didn't want to try to own it. 
And I had so many people trying to tell me that that was a mistake. But here's what happened, Mike, is so many other people are writing about it and talking about it. Other people wrote books about newsjacking, using the word newsjacking. And just, I think it was last year, a year and a half ago, the Oxford English Dictionary listed newsjacking as a word in the dictionary, and they put my name against the listing. None of that would have happened. People would not have talked about me. They wouldn't have blogged about me. They wouldn't have talked about this idea of newsjacking if I had tried to own that term. Very so cool. I'm not I'm not trying to, to say that lawyers are always wrong. I'm not trying to say that you shouldn't trademark something if it makes sense. But I am saying if you want to generate fans – what you need to do is let go of your creations and let your fans take over. One, one real, another real quick example, iRobot makes the Roomba vacuum cleaners. Right. And you may have seen on, on YouTube, there's a whole bunch of people who have become fans of their dogs and cats riding on the Roomba and other animals even too, riding on the Roombas. And they put those fan created videos online and iRobot, the company that makes Roomba, could have said, oh, that's not an appropriate use of our product, take those videos down, but they didn't. They celebrate the fact that people used a Roomba in a weird way and their fans are doing that. And there's tens of millions of views of those videos. So let go of your creations. Real quick, just so I can wrap my brain around letting go of the creations. It's not like you're saying, hey, look, if you create some software, let people steal the software. You're not saying that, no. right? No, I'm not. And I'm not saying if you write a book that people shouldn't have to pay for it. Right. And I'm not saying that everything needs to be free. I don't believe that. I do believe, though, that this is sort of the quote. It's my daughter's quote, which I love. Once you put your creation into the world, it no longer belongs to you. It belongs to the fans. So if you think of it in that way, once you put your creation into the world, it no longer belongs to you. It belongs to your fans. Of course, you should be selling your product or service. But once it's out there, it doesn't belong to you. So let your fans fans help you make the product better probably is part of it, too, right? I think, yes, I, yes, that's true. Now, here's another example with social media marketing world. Yeah, they buy a ticket, but then each person's fan experience is different and they're celebrating the fact that they're there. They love that they're there. They're sharing on social, they're snapping photos and putting it on Instagram. They're, they're live streaming, they're doing whatever they're, and it's really cool stuff. And that conference once it's going on doesn't belong to you mike anymore it belongs to the people who are there right i like that good all right good so the first thing is let go of your creations what's your next one the next one very applicable with social media marketing is give more than you have to and this idea came out of my love of the grateful dead the grateful dead was the first band to let fans record their music. Every other band on the ticket, it says no recording allowed. You can't bring in your audio or video. Grateful Dead said, sure, why not? And so people, I wasn't a taper, but people um, in the early days on cassette tapes would record the shows, later on MP3 files, and the band would give you a spot right behind the mixing board, the best place for sound, and you could record the concerts. And the only rule was you're not allowed to sell the tapes or MP3 files. Um, You can trade them, you can give them away, you can collect them, but you can't sell them. And that resulted in a huge, I would call it a social network. It was a social network of Grateful Dead fans who organized around this idea of free content before Mark Zuckerberg was even born, because this goes back to the 1970s. And so this idea of making something free 
I then sort of translate to the idea of, you know, in our world of social media and generating attention and, and delivering content, many people put squeeze pages around their best content. For example, a white paper and the squeeze page requires that you sign up using an email address. And I believe that if you take a page out of the Grateful Dead's playbook, that give more than you have to make that white paper completely free. And you, of course, being the white paper expert, I'm interested in your take on this, make the white paper completely free. That is much more likely to build fans. And if you put a squeeze page and require that people give an email address, sure, you can build a couple of, of emails into your email list. So it comes down to your goal. Is your goal to build fans, in that case, make the white paper completely free. Is your goal to generate some email addresses? Well, maybe think about having a squeeze page, but there's a hybrid model, which is also interesting, which is make the initial white paper completely free and then have a, an offer in the white paper where you can then generate an email address from people. Maybe, okay, if you like this white paper, why not subscribe to our email list? If you like this white paper, why not participate in our next webinar? So that's a practical idea where a white paper can be used to generate fans as opposed to a white paper simply to generate email addresses. And I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on that because I know you've thought long and hard and written the book on white papers. Well, before I answer that, I have to ask a question about the Grateful Dead for those of us sure. who have never had a chance to experience one. Why would someone record it if they've already got the album, is it because each performance is unique? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I should have said that. The Grateful Dead has at any one time, and there's still, by the way, Jerry Garcia died in 1995, and there's still, the band is still touring. Um, three of the original members are touring now as Dead and Company with John Mayer playing the Jerry Garcia role. And they have at any one time a repertoire of about 150 um, songs that they could potentially play. And they never play a song the same way ah. because they're a jam band, you know, so they might do a song that goes for five minutes one night and then they won't play it again for six months. And the next time they play it, it'll go 12 minutes and every set list is different. So I went in 2019, I went to seven Dead & Company shows and there are very few repeats that I heard over those seven shows and of, of songs, I mean. And so what that means is that fans always know that every show is going to be utterly different. Uh, Unlike, say, the Rolling Stones that pretty much repeat the same set list every night. Got it. And therefore, the tapes become artifacts of each show. And later on, MP3 files, artifacts of each show. So people love to tape them and, and collect those recordings. So to answer your question, I'm going to answer in a roundabout way. Yeah. When I started Social Media Examiner 10 plus years ago, one of the things that I noticed was there was a lot of consultants that were bloggers and they were not giving away their knowledge. Instead, they were mm -hmm. complaining about the social platforms. Here's mm -hmm. what's wrong with Twitter. Here's what's wrong with Facebook. And I instead took the philosophy to actually give away everything I knew for free in a how-to article. So the mm -hmm. idea was to just literally write it all and put it out there in an article. And that's kind of like giving away more than I had to, right? Because yeah, absolutely. it's actually absolutely everything that I had. Others today will do this where maybe they have a keynote at an event and they just will stick it out on YouTube afterwards. Like, like right. I know Brian Solis does this all the time. So the idea that they didn't have to, 
you know, because that was obviously an event that was a private event is something that I find very interesting. Now, in our particular case, because we gave everything away, the one thing that we chose not to give away for free was a report that Mm. we still use to this day as a way to get people on our email list because everything else we do give away for free. So our report is an annual study that we do and we release it like a 50 page report and we actually get about 200,000 email subscribers a year off of that thing. So I do believe that it's useful to have something to generate emails with, but not if it's only the only thing that you do. Do you understand where I'm going with that? That's the difference. And, and that's exactly what we suggest as well, is that make almost everything free and then have much of that free content potentially point to the thing where they have to generate an email address to get it. And that thing that they do end up generating the email address is super valuable. Exactly. And people are already your fans because of all the free content you've delivered. So that by the time they get to the page where they have to enter an email to get that big report, they're happy to do that. And they also, they trust you by then. Where it goes wrong is when the first encounter, when they get to the homepage is, here's our wonderful white paper, but there's an adversarial relationship that's set up. So you and I are thinking exactly the same. Well, and look, you're doing this right now by being on my podcast and revealing a lot of details that are in your book more than you had to, right? Absolutely. People do this when they make YouTube videos, right? So if you all think about the content that you create, whether it be spoken, whether it be written or whether it be video form, give more away than you feel comfortable giving away because it will come back and it will benefit you is what I'm hearing you say. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I've had a lot of marketers tell me, well, David, the problem is that I have a sales team and I have a, I have a sales vice president who's all over me to get leads. Um, and so I've got to close down this white paper and, and put a squeeze page on because I need leads. And what you're telling me and what I've seen with lots and lots of other companies is give away a ton of stuff, right? but then have one special thing, whatever that might be that you can generate email addresses because those are going to be hot leads, right? It's a hot lead when someone's already consumed a bunch of your stuff and they're a fan, Exactly. It's a cold lead when they give you an email address because they want your your first initial report. Absolutely. And of course, everyone who's listening who works for a decent size organization and has a sales and a yes, marketing department, <laughs> you know, um, and the sales team and, needs their leads. And I get it. I mean, David, you I know, get it too. You work with HubSpot. And, they're probably one of the biggest lead generators in the world. Right. And there's yeah. that friction. Right. Yeah. And I'm, as you know, I'm on the advisory board of HubSpot and have been since 2007. There is, there is, but man, do they give away a a ton of information and, and yes, they generate leads too, but they give away the information first and then the leads come later. Very cool. Excellent. So first of all, let go of your creations. Secondly, give more than you have to just out of curiosity and to give more than you have to, do you you also advise, what about for the small consultant listening right now? Should they, does that involve maybe giving away a free hour of your time to try to generate an opportunity or what's your thoughts on that? I'm not really sure. I think that's sort of a case by case basis. You know, when I talk about this idea of giving more than, than you have to, it's really 
the process of doing that is to develop fans. I see. Got it. So, and then the fans will want to be your customers. So it's turning fans into customers. So maybe doing a free webinar, you know, for lots of people. So yeah, so it could be a free webinar. I mean, I think there might be some opportunities where certain consultants, given certain criteria, could give away something like an hour's worth of time. But generally what I'm thinking here is that you separate what your product is that you sell from the content that you give away. And, you know, in my case, I give away so much content. Oh my gosh. It's like, I've done, I don't know, 1500 blog posts and I must have a couple hundred videos and, and all kinds of white papers. I mean, there's all sorts of, you know, eBooks and stuff I've given away, but I do sell books and I do sell speaking engagements and I do serve on advisory boards. So I'm not prepared to necessarily give those things away. Although I do have one book that I give away. It's called Worldwide Rave. It's completely free in an ebook format. Although if you wanted it in hardcover, you have to pay for it. So so I don't know that you have to give away your consulting. Right. Something, something that is that, scalable is what I'm hearing is what you should yeah, give away. I think, I think that's probably a good way of saying it. Cool. And then your third example? Yeah. So the, the last one, well, the last one we're going to talk about, there's another seven in the book, but the last one that I think has a real interesting uh, applicability to social media marketers is the concept of get closer than usual. And so I mentioned earlier, my daughter, Reiko, my co-author is a neuroscientist, and we wanted to really dig into the neuroscience of what's going on when you become a fan of something. So what we did was we spoke with a number of, of well-known neuroscientists, PhDs and whatnot, to find out what goes on in our brains when we become a fan. Hmm. And it turns out that all humans are hardwired. It goes back to, it's in our DNA. It goes back to caveman days. <laughs> We're hardwired to want to know if the people around us are part of our tribe or a potential enemy. And that's hardwired. We can't help that. Our brains think that way. And so what this means is that When I'm at a Grateful Dead concert or my daughter's at a Harry Potter event or people are at social media marketing world, they're part of their tribe. They're with like-minded people. They're with people that they're comfortable with. And again, that goes back to caveman days. People are comfortable with the tribe. Um, So you walk into a a room with people from social at social media marketing world, you go to the cocktail party, for example, those are people that you know, and that you not that you not necessarily know personally, but they're part of the same tribe, same thing as a Grateful Dead concert, you could turn to anybody next to you. And they're a like minded person, and you can strike strike up a conversation, have a very strong personal connection. But if you get into a crowded elevator, Uh, or a crowded subway car, you're not part of the same tribe with those people. And you naturally feel nervous because your brain's fight or flight mode is kicking in. There's one neuroscientist by the name of Edward T. Hall who identified the levels of proximity furthest away is 20 feet or further called public space between 20 feet and about four feet is called social space and inside of four feet is called personal space. Mm -hmm. And our brains at 20 feet know that there's people that are that far away from us, but we don't track those people between 20 feet and four feet social space. Our brain begins to track people who get in our social space and inside of four feet personal space. That's cocktail party distance. What that means is people who are part of your tribe, the closer that you get to them, the more powerful, the positive emotions. People who are not part of your tribe, who you don't know, 
you feel nervous when you're near them. And as the closer they get, the more nervous you feel. That's again, hardwired. So what this means for us in a physical world is in your business, can you bring people together physically? Can you do what you did, Mike? Can you create an event like Social Media Marketing World? Or, or can you go out and meet customers in their home turf? Can you, can you have customers meet other customers? And those physical connections with like-minded people are incredibly powerful. And, you know, when we talk about this idea of proximity, again, hardwired neuroscience concept, um, people kind of nod their, nod their heads. It makes sense. But they often, people will often say, well, that my business doesn't lend itself to having a physical meeting or going out and meeting customers physically. I run a business that's global or I run a virtual business. Well, it turns out there's another concept around neuroscience, which is equally fascinating. And all of us, everyone listening into this, everybody who's doing marketing and social media marketing can do this. And that is the concept of mirror neurons, which are the parts of our brains that fire when we see somebody or even hear somebody do something as if we are doing it ourselves, And so I'll demonstrate this. And if you were able to see me on video, uh, I'm not on video, but if I were, it would be even more powerful. But I think even just from talking about it, you'll get the idea. I'm now going to bite into a lemon. I have a lemon right here in front of me. I have both a full lemon and I have a slice of lemon. I'm going to bite into that lemon right now. Okay. Wow. And I bite into that lemon. It's really powerful. My eyes close. My mouth puckers up. Um, it's instinctive. I can't even help it. My my saliva glands start to do their thing. My I can really taste that lemon on my mouth. My brain is firing. But I'll, I would guess, Mike, even by just me talking about that, you didn't even see me do it, but just by me talking about that, your brain might be firing a little bit too. You might have even tasted a little bit of lemon on the end of your tongue. Yeah. I mean, when you were starting to talk about the lemon, my mouth was starting to salivate a little bit. So absolutely. So is that essentially what you're talking about? It is it, exactly what I'm talking about. But if you had seen me, if I had been on video and you had seen me with the lemon in my hand, it would have been even pow more powerful. Hmm. So that's the idea of mirror neurons, which are the part of your brain that fires when you see or hear somebody do something, especially see them do something as if you're doing it yourself. So here's how this is really powerful for social media marketing. The more you use video and photographs cropped as if you're in the personal space, of the camera. So up close, the, really, right? Up close. Yeah. Because remember, we just a moment ago, we talked about the different levels of proximity, personal spaces within four feet, cocktail party distance. If you do videos and photographs cropped as if you're within four feet of the camera, looking directly at the camera, that's incredibly powerful. And the people who are seeing that that video or that photograph, their brains are telling them that they're in your personal space, even though you're not. If it's a live video that you could be thousands of miles away, those people's brains believe they are in the same room as you. That's exactly why you feel you know a movie star. You've never met them, but because you've seen them on a screen, typically within 
close physical proximity on the screen, you feel as though you know that movie star. It also explains like the selfie phenomenon. So many people believe that the selfie is a frivolous and only for kids. But in fact, it's fabulously powerful because your arm is four feet or less typically, uh, unless you're a basketball player maybe. Right. Um, and you're, you're typically looking directly at the camera. So the people who see that selfie, their brains tell them that they are in close physical proximity to you. That's what their brain tells them. And therefore, they feel as if you, they're part of your tribe. And the other thing- And by the way, if you get another person in there, they got to get really close to you to even take the shot, right? Exactly. You took the words out of my mouth. It's exactly (laughs) right. So if you have more than one person in your shot, You are showing the people who are seeing that photograph that you are in very close physical proximity with the other people in that photograph um, that's within personal space. And if you're all looking at the camera, everyone's aligned. So if if I were doing a selfie with you, we're both aligned looking at the camera. And then the people who are seeing that image, their brains are registering that I'm part of this tribe. This is really powerful for social media marketing. And it's a little used tool. I mean, yes, many of us use video. Yes, many of us use photographs. But we don't consciously think of the neuroscience aspects of how to best crop those photos. And in fact, I can give you evidence of this in your own social media feed. Go in and look on your social media feed, Instagram, Facebook, um, uh, Twitter, whatever. And look for those photos that are cropped close, a selfie or some other photo, you're looking directly at the camera cropped close. Count the reactions, count the likes and the retweets and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And for most people on their social feeds, those are going to be the most reacted to images on their social feeds. That's exactly why, because those people feel they're part of your tribe. This is a powerful way to grow fans. Well, and I'm doing some direct camera videos for YouTube and I've got a professional guy editing these things. And one of the things that I noticed that he's doing, especially during key moments of the video, he's getting really tight. He's, you know, they're filmed in 4K so you could crop in on them really nice. And he crops in really tight on my face. And I don't know why, but when that happens, I find that I'm paying more attention to what is being said. Right. And maybe that's another thing, right? Because I think that's another aspect of it. Yeah, because once you're cropped in tight, you're at cocktail party distance, four feet or less, which is personal space. That's when the most powerful human connections um, happen. Um, And that's how you build fans. And 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 real, real quickly, contrast that with what a lot of companies do, which is the 60 minute style interview, which is two cameras, two people talking, sometimes three cameras, two people talking to one another, but the camera is never um, trained on someone's eyes. In other words, they're never looking at the camera. Those, it's much harder to get traction around videos like that. Looking directly at the camera is, from the neuroscience perspective, the best way to build fans. Awesome. Well, David, I know we could talk about this all day long. I want people to go get your book and I want them to find out more about you. So where do you want to send them? Uh, so we've got a great website. It's at www.fanocracy.com. And uh, lots of, um, after talking about um, no registration required, lots of free content there. They've got, we've got videos, we've got PDFs you can download. There's actually some pretty cool infographics around this idea of proximity that we just talked about. And on the social networks, I am DM Scott, D-M-S-C-O-T-T. If you wanted to reach me, my full name is David Meerman Scott, and I'm the only David 
David Muirman Scott on the planet. So if you Google me, you will find me and only me. David, thank you again for coming on and sharing your wisdom with us. We're way better as a result of it. Thank you, Mike. So awesome to be on the show. Finally, I've um, admired your work from afar for a long time. We've been buddies, but it's the first time on the show. And I really appreciate you having me on. And if there was anything we mentioned in today's episode and you missed it, the notes can be found at socialmediaexaminer.com slash 392. New to the podcast, hit the subscribe button. This brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Social Media Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I promise to be back with you next week. I hope you make the best out of your day and may social media continue to change your world in a good way. The Social Media Marketing Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. Hey, just a quick reminder, join the Social Media Marketing Society today and level up your marketing for your company or your clients. Visit smmarketingsociety.com to find out more.